So if you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 8. Ecclesiastes, chapter 8. We said early on in this series that there's debate about the authorship of this book. It doesn't say specifically that it was written by Solomon, but tradition of the church holds that Solomon is the author of this text. And, but at the very least, that, that as we read this, we can see that, that the origin of the wisdom is from Solomon, that it may have been arranged by a later inspired editor in the Old Testament period into the, to the present form. But this book is coming through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit coming to us with a distinct voice in the Bible to teach us about the nature of wisdom and and wisdom in the very nitty-gritty, practical, daily life, Uh, not just the ideal of what wisdom should be, but when when, when wisdom hits the difficulty of life, when it hits the struggle of your life today in this world, what does it look like? Is there hope? That's what this, this book is wrestling with. And so... Last week, we had a a, a discussion about the doctrine of sin. And we we talked about sin, that everyone sins. Everyone falls short of the glory of God. And we talked about two implications of that in resisting temptation. And then today, we're we're going into the the, another practical look at this this theme of, of wisdom lived out in the world. So again, this is Ecclesiastes chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, and I'll read through verse 9. Who is like the wise, and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time in the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observed while applying my heart to know all that is done under the sun when man had power over man to his hurt. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we Confess today that the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And so, Father, we pray that the truth, the abiding truth of your word here in this text would shine forth to us in our day-to-day lives and that 
our application of it today would be true and would be faithful, that we wouldn't misapply your word or bring it to bear in our lives in a way that is not true to the total teaching of Scripture. But as we interpret Scripture against Scripture, reading this Scripture in light of the Bible as a whole, we pray that you would guide our discussion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I said, one of the purposes of the book of Ecclesiastes is to take abstract wisdom into practice. And what you see then in verse 1 of this text is in a way that the statement of wisdom in principle, how good and beautiful wisdom is. It says, who is like the wise? Who is like them? They're incomparable in the world. And who knows the interpretation of a thing? Who can discern the right path? You can think of Joseph interpreting dreams or Daniel interpreting dreams within the scripture that they could discern the way because they were people of wisdom. That a man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. And I I love that image of wisdom It reminds me of Jesus where he says that we should let our our light shine before men that they may see the light and glorify our Father. That that to live in wisdom shines light from our face. And it's not necessarily a literal, physical light that we can see with our eyes. Though that image is in Scripture, you can think of Moses when he approached God that his face would shine after his encounter with God, or you can think of Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration where his face shone, or, or you can think of Stephen right before he was stoned in the book of Acts where his face shone as he proclaimed God's word to the crowd that was about to stone him to death. That there is this sense of our face shining, but I think here it's, it's talking about this wisdom and principle that it says the hardness of his face is changed. That wisdom changes our face, our countenance, our our demeanor, the way we interact with the world. So that's wisdom in principle. It's a beautiful thing. But like so many things in life, something can sound good in principle when it's viewed abstractly, but it gets hard when you bring it into real-life situations. What does wisdom look like in difficult situations. And so what Solomon brings us to here then is the, the, the application of wisdom to the royal court. If you are serving on the, in the court of the king, what does it look like to be wise? How do you submit to the leadership without falling into sin? It's, it's difficult. And and for us today, it it may not be the king, but we face the similar situation where it's so hard as Christians to know how to relate to the civil government. How do we live as faithful Christians in the world, being in the world but not of the world? How do we think about obedience to the government, the way we talk about the government, the way we interact with the government? It's difficult. It's complex. It's hard to know what wisdom looks like. So the question that we face is this, what does it look like to live wisely before the king 
and those in political authority? And you see two answers here in our text. So the first answer is this, that sometimes we're called to obey those in authority, to obey those in authority. Look at verse 2 in your Bible. He says, Keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. The command then is very straight, very direct. Keep the king's command. Obey the king's word. And if you look at different English translations, that, that basic command is consistent. They might use slightly different wording from the original Hebrew, but it's the same. Obey the king. But then the rationale that's given is, is complex in the original language, and so translations differ. In the ESV that I just read, it says that we should obey the king because of God's oath to the king. In other words, God made an oath to the king, and because of that, that connection between the king and God, you should obey the king. And maybe that's a reference to 2 Samuel 7, where God made an oath, a promise to David and to his offspring forever that they would be on the throne of Israel. And so it could be that you, you are to obey the true Davidic king because God made an oath to the line of David. But listen to how the, the, the NIV translates this. The NIV says that we should obey the king because you took an oath before God. So it's not God's oath then to the king, but your oath to the king before God. And either can be reflected in the original language. And that could be drawing from a, a verse like 1 Chronicles 29, verse 24, where it says that all the leaders and the mighty men and also all the sons of King David pledged their allegiance to King Solomon. So all the former officials under David pledged allegiance to King Solomon. But that's not something strange, something unusual. I mean, you know that in societies with, with a monarchy, that if you're going to serve the king, you would make an oath of fealty, of to respect, honor, to obey the king as your political lord. So that's what it could be talking about here, that you need to obey the command of the king because you made an oath and you need to keep your oath. But either way, no matter how you read it, the point is clear that sometimes we're called to obey those in authority, to submit to those in authority. And you say, is this an isolated piece of wisdom in Scripture? Is this taught anywhere else in the Bible? And you can actually see this principle at work in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are something like a moral filing cabinet. <laughs> uh, that, that, that Each of the Ten Commandments is like a file and you have 10 folders, and every moral principle, either saying do this or don't do this, can be filed somewhere within the Ten Commandments. So each one of them is, is representing a, a category of sin and obedience. And you're probably familiar with the, the Fifth Commandment that says, Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord is giving to you. 
And there it says, clearly, obey your father and mother. So for children to submit to the authority of their parents in the structure of the family. But listen to how the, the Westminster larger catechism, part of the doctrinal standard for our church, wrestles with this. It says, what are meant by fathers and mothers in the fifth commandment? The answer it gives is this. By father and mother in the fifth commandment are meant not only natural parents, but all superiors in age and gifts, and especially such as, by God's ordinance, are over us in place of authority, whether in family, church, or commonwealth. And so they're saying that, that this, this principle of submission to authority, that, that the starting place in our life is obedience of children to parents, that's how we enter into that, the world in that relationship, but that God also has, there's the, the family structure and there's the submission of children, there's the, the church structure, there's the civil government as well. And so that, that principle of the submission to authority flows out of the, the logic of the fifth commandment. But that, that principle is not just implied in the Ten Commandments, it's actually expounded, unfolded for us even more clearly in the New Testament. So this is what the Apostle Peter says in his letter, 1 Peter 2, verses 13 and 14. He says, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And there's Peter the man who would be executed under the tyranny of the emperor, who's saying that you should be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, even to the emperor, that there's submission to the governing authorities. It's the same as we see here in Ecclesiastes. Obey the king because of the Lord's oath to him. Or listen to what the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 and 2. In the book of Romans, he had been unpacking the gospel that we're saved by faith alone and Christ alone. But then how is that worked out in day-to-day -day life? And part of that has to do with our posture towards government. He says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Again, this is Paul who would be executed by the Roman government that was telling him not to preach Jesus. But you're, yeah, Paul is saying that as far as we're able, that the command is to submit, to obey the governing authorities, to see their role in society is God-ordained, as actually coming from God. Even though it's the pagan Roman Empire in their context, he's saying that they have been instituted by God to maintain justice and to maintain order and peace in the world. So that's this principle of submission to the government, to the civil authority. But you say, well, how does this play out today? You see this, this in our text, you see it in the Ten Commandments, you see it 
unpacked in the New Testament, but how does this look today? I think that our call as Christians is to be faithful in our role as citizens. That can mean a few different things. I think part of it is to obey our leaders, to obey the laws of our land. Even when we don't want to, even when we don't like the laws or the policies that are put into place, that as far as we can, as far as it is possible, our call is to submit to the governing authorities. And I think that especially in our current context where there, there's been much discussion about the rise of political violence in our country, uh, and there are examples of political violence both on the political right and on the political left. But what it's saying is that, that for, for Christians, that we don't fall into political violence, that, that our call is to obey, to be good citizens, to be faithful to the civil government as far as we are able to carry that principle through. But it's not just obedience to the laws of the civil government that, that, I, that we can also think about this in terms of the way we speak about the civil government, that we are to, to speak in a respectful way when we talk about the government. We, we are not to, Christians are not to make fun of politicians. And I think that we can all be guilty of probably talking about political leaders in a disrespectful way, to think about the way that we we joke, the, the kinds of memes that we share, that there are going to be such a, a, a temptation to, to disrespect those in authority because we feel like, well, the, the people in authority deserve this in some way. They don't deserve our, our respect. But yet what this is saying is that we should respect, honor those who are in authority to be faithful citizens. And, and I think a good way, a good test maybe, in your, in your life would be to, to think about how much you talk about a politician, either good or bad, versus how much you pray for that particular politician. Are, are you, have you spent more time talking about them than praying for them? And if that's the case, you might either increase the amount that you're praying for them <laughs> or reduce the amount that you're talking about them, or maybe, maybe do both. And I think that the call, as we see even in from Paul in 1 Timothy, he says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. What is our posture toward the civil government? Do we seek to obey the king, to obey those in authority, not for their sake, but for the Lord's sake, as we see in Scripture? So that's the, the first point here, that sometimes we're called to obey those in authority. But I imagine that you might then say, well, what about civil disobedience? Aren't there times that we are to stand up against the government, to oppose the government? And this brings us then to the second point, that sometimes we're called to disobey those in authority. And... This is implied in our text, I believe. Um, so look at, at verse 3. It says, Be not hasty to go from his presence, from the king's presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, 
for he does whatever he pleases. Now, as you read that, you might say, what, is, what does that mean? What is this teaching? What is this getting at? And there's two different schools among biblical interpreters. If you read biblical commentaries on this text, people disagree on what this means. So some, even some English translations, take it as a continuation of the thought from verse 2. So this is what the NLT, the New Living Translation, says. It says, don't try to avoid doing your duty. And don't stand with those who plot evil, for the king can do whatever he wants. And so when you read it that way, it seems like it's continuing the thought. Obey the king because of God's oath to the king. And it's saying, don't avoid doing your duty. Don't be, uh, don't be slow in doing your duty. Uh, and it says, uh, don't plot evil against the king. Don't withdraw from the king's present presence and plot evil against him in some kind of conspiracy because you have to submit to the governing authorities. That's how we would read it. But listen to another translation. This is the, the Christian Standard Bible, the CSB. It says, don't be in a hurry, semicolon, leave his presence, and don't persist, persist in a bad cause, since he will do whatever he wants. So do you hear the, the difference in how it's, it's reading it? It's saying, don't be in a hurry. In other words, if the king is doing something that it, it is wrong, that is an evil cause, don't rush out of the, the presence. Don't raise a big stir in his presence. But then it says, leave his presence, get out of his presence, and do not persist in a bad cause. That don't stay in the presence, don't continue serving if it's a bad cause, since he, the king, will do whatever he wants. The king's going to do what he wants, one way or another. And so you need to, to get out of Dodge, get out of the, his presence, and don't persist in doing something evil, something wrong. Now, again, there's, there's debate on which way to read it. I, I, I really appreciate that second reading from the Christian Standard Bible, that, that it, this is actually opening up some sort of a possibility of a form of civil disobedience to the king, still doing it in gentleness, still doing it in, in wisdom, but really no matter which reading you take of that verse, whichever reading you take of verse 3, the principle still stands biblically because you see that the passages like Ecclesiastes 3 verse 2 where it tells us to obey the king. You see the passages I read from Romans 13 where he says to submit to those in authority. But we see from Scripture that there is a limit to how far we will obey those in authority. And, and really we face two questions. Is the government commanding us to do something that God forbids? Or is the government forbidding us to do something that God commands? So are they, they commanding what is wrong or forbidding what is right in what God, terms of what God commands. And if that's the case, there are places where somebody who's being faithful to scripture will actually have to go against the civil authority. So you could think of Jonathan and his father Saul. So this is in 1 Samuel 20. Uh, not our Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan in the Old Testament who uh, was a friend of King David, the son of King Saul. And Saul desperately wanted to kill David. And he was trying to, to trick David to come to a feast. He invited David, but David knew that it was a trap. 
And so when, when David didn't show up at the feast, Saul became angry and he basically told his son, Jonathan, I want you to bring David here so we can kill him because he shouldn't live any longer. And at that point, you think of Jonathan's position. This is parental authority, honor your father. This is civil authority. This is the king telling me to do this. And he refused. He said, what has David done? Why should we do this to him? No, I'm not going to bring David. And his father flew into a rage, threw a spear at his own son. Who, But then it says that he, he left the king's presence. At that point, he, he followed the wisdom of our text where he, he didn't hurry, but yet at that point he withdrew from the king's presence. He didn't persist, persist in an evil cause. It was a form of civil disobedience. Or you can think of the other classic examples in scripture, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in Daniel chapter 3. They're commanded to bow down before the, the statue that was set up. They refuse to worship an idol, they were thrown into the fiery furnace, but God preserved them through. Or you can think later in Daniel, Daniel chapter 6, of Daniel and the lion's den. When Daniel is commanded not to pray to God for a season, he refuses, he continues to pray, he's thrown into the lion's den, God preserves him. Or you can think in Acts 4, where the, the Jewish authorities commanded the apostles not to teach or preach anymore in the name of Jesus. And they they said, no, we're not going to do that. This is Acts 4, verse 19. Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. For we are unable to stop speaking what we have seen and heard. So that's civil disobedience. That Yes, they are to submit to the governing authorities. Yes, they are to obey the king. But it's saying that, that when it comes to what God has commanded them to do, they're going to listen to God rather than to man. You say, well, what has this looked like in history? Well, there, And there's examples of this throughout history. So one would be the, the Puritans in the 17th century. They were commanded to say that the queen or the king is the, the head of the church. And they said, no, Christ alone is head of the church. They were uh, commanded to worship in a way that they believed was unfaithful to Scripture. They said, we're not going to do that, to, uh, to agree with doctrine that they thought was unbiblical. They said, we're not going to do that. And as a result, they faced persecution. The very people who said that you should submit to the governing authorities because of the fifth commandment said, no, when it, when it comes to the commands of God, we're going to obey God rather than man. So some were removed from their pulpits. They weren't allowed to to preach within five miles of any place where they had preached previously. Uh, they were they were spent time in prison. You could think of John Bunyan, who wrote Pilgrim's Progress. They Some of them fled to the New World for religious freedom. Some were killed for what they believed was right. There was this form of, of civil disobedience in terms of standing up for what is right, not persisting in an evil cause in the language of our text. Or... You could think of a, a later example in the 20th century of the civil rights movement. And that's probably where people think about the, this idea of, of civil disobedience, where you have Rosa Parks initiating much of the civil rights movement when she refused to give up her seat to a white man on the bus in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955, that, that she was 
practicing a form of civil disobedience. In a sense, she wasn't submitting to the governing authority, uh, but it was because what they were commanding or what they were ordering was not true, right, right and just. And so the, we can see the, the fruit of, of that approach. You say, well, what about today? Are there examples today where Christians might have to practice a form of, of civil disobedience, where they might have to, to not be in a hurry, but yet to leave his presence, do not persist in a bad cause, since he will do whatever he wills. Do we ever have to practice any kind of civil disobedience today? And I think that, that in, our, in our modern society, that the question will come primarily in terms of the sexual revolution. And if, you're, if you've been in Christian circles, maybe you've, you've heard that term sexual revolution. But it's really a, a transformation of the understanding of, of sexual values in the, in the last maybe 70 years. Um, I mean, since the, the 60s and 70s uh, in the kind of free love movement, but it's something that has really accelerated, especially in the last 10 years, where more of the a traditional understanding of what is right and wrong in terms of sexual ethic has been, has been changed or understood differently in modern society to the point that, that to think what, what most Jews and Muslims and Christians have thought throughout history is considered um, not only to be narrow-minded, but actually to be discrimination, to be oppressive, to be hurtful to, to others. And so, so you start to see then where there could, there's this conflict where we, we're called to be good citizens, we're called to obey those in authority, whether it's civil authorities, but we're also called to stand true to our principles. And one of the reasons also that this, this came to mind was as I was, I was working on this sermon, I, I like to get out occasionally to work uh, in a, a, a coffee shop or uh, it, it just because it helps me kind of think. And so I worked one day at Starbucks and one day at, at Panera. And, and, and on both days, the majority of the workers had rainbow shirts or rainbow uh, pins. And, and so I was thinking about, okay, so as, as Christians, we're, we're commanded to be good citizens. We're commanded to love everyone created in the image of God, to love people of all different persuasions, all different lifestyles. But then you think of, okay, what would a Christian do in that situation? If they're working for one of those, one of those companies, do they celebrate a lifestyle that they believe is contrary to God's word and, and for human flourishing? Or do they keep their head down and obey what the authority is saying? Or you can think about a recent Supreme Court case uh, a few years ago that the city of Philadelphia sued uh, Catholic, uh, what is it, Catholic social services in Philadelphia. Uh, and the reason was that, that Catholic social services would not place children into same-sex homes and, and appealing to their long-held Catholic views about human sexuality. And it was, it was interesting that it, it wasn't even something that was an immediate issue. There were, there were no same-sex couples that were in line to be, have children placed into their homes. But the city of Philadelphia said, that's, that's wrong, that's discrimination. If you're going to be engaged in adoption and foster in the city of Philadelphia, then you need to submit to what we're saying. 
And when it was taken up to, by the Supreme Court, finally, it was a unanimous decision uh, in favor of Catholic social services saying that the city of Philadelphia aired, that they violated their religious rights. But, but what I'm saying is regard, there's complexity in all of these issues. Okay, what actually is a Christian to do? And there's probably even disagreement on what is right in this room as we try to think through these things from, from Scripture. But the point is, is that as we think about this principle from Scripture, that the collision, I think, will come primarily in this question of sexual ethic in our society. And so what do we do? How do we think about this? How do we prepare for this? I think one is to be a, a student of the Word of God first and foremost, because it'll, it's very important that we distinguish our own opinions about things from the clear teaching of Scripture. That to simply stand up for your own subjective opinion is not biblical civil disobedience. Uh, to confuse human tradition, or just that's the way it's always been done with the teaching of Scripture, is not what we're called to do. That we're called to stand on the teaching of Scripture. So to know the Bible, what does the Bible actually teach? But then also, I think that as Christians, we should spend a lot of time talking about these things, reflecting on these things before we actually face the questions in person. What is the right thing to do? How do we understand these questions from the Bible? Because, as we said, sometimes we're called to obey those in authority. Sometimes we're called to submit, to disobey those in authority. So when do we choose one rather than the other? It takes great wisdom, great discernment. And that's what we see in verse 6, going back to our text in Ecclesiastes. He says, For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. That There, there is a time, there is a place uh, for these things. And, and, and so it's, it's the wisdom to know what God requires of us in that moment, whether it's easy, whether it's hard, uh, whether it'll make friends or lose friends, to try to be faithful to what Scripture says. But as we wrap up then, I think that bringing the pieces together, no matter whether we're, we're to obey or disobey, depending on the situation and how we think about the, the current issue, that it's very important that we remember the limits of the civil authority, that they can't do everything. The government is not ultimate. And that's what we see in verse 8 in your Bible. It says that no man has power to retain the spirit, or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. And so this is saying that when you consider humanity, that their, their power is limited. They can't retain the spirit. They can't decide ultimately when we die. Uh, they can't control death ultimately. They think that they can control death, but the powers of life and death is in the hands of God, and the moment our passing is in the sovereign hand. And it says there's no discharge from war. And I think that that's getting at that the, the battle of this life, there's no discharge from it. Uh, and so how, who has this authority? Who has this power? And the answer is God alone, that God alone can retain the spirit, that God alone has power over the day of death, that God alone is King of kings and, and Lord of lords. And so when we think about our allegiance, it comes ultimately to, to King Jesus because he is the King of kings, that we are to obey earthly kings 
for the Lord's sake, but it's, it is for the Lord's sake because he is the true and the final king. And he's the king who says, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Because what we have in Jesus is then a king who comes to, to live the life that we couldn't live, to lay his life down for us. And with King Jesus, there is no need for civil disobedience because he is the king whose word is, is always right, is always true, is always best for us in the end, is always exactly what we need. And so as we trust in Jesus, we pray, Lord, be my king. Let me live fully and completely to you, whether that's in relation to the civil government, towards my neighbors, my friends, that the, the light of the wisdom of Christ would change the countenance of my heart and my spirit, and that my light would shine out from Christ to the world around me, that they might see those good deeds and glorify our Father who is in heaven. Father, we, we pray today that this would be true for us. We, we pray that the light of our wisdom and Christ Jesus, who is our wisdom, that he would shine from us, that, that his light would shine as we, we love those around us, as we love everyone who is created in the image of God, as we love people who have different political views, as we love people who have um, different views on what is right and wrong and human sexuality. Lord, we pray that, that we would be known for, for gentleness and love and peace, but also for, for truth, for courage, for, for being willing to, to say what is true, what is right. And so, Father, we pray that, that you would give us this great, great wisdom. We face, we live in a world where there is governmental authority, and we pray that our default would be to be good citizens, to to not speak in an unkind way of our politicians, to pray for them, to, uh, to show love, uh, even in our conversation, to not grumble, to not complain, to not fall into the spirit of our age when it comes to the, the tone of political discourse. But at the same time, Lord, we, we want to be people who are not conformed to this world, but being transformed through the renewal of our minds, and that you would show us those places where we are being asked to do something that you forbid, or asking to, do, to be being asked to do something that that you being forbidden to do something that you command. And so, Lord, we pray that you would, in those moments, give us clarity in the knowledge of Scripture, that you would give us clarity on the application of Scripture into the modern world, and that you would give us courage to do what is right and what is true that we would and we would do it with gentleness and, and humility and and with love knowing that the powers of life and death eternity is is in your hand lord so we don't need to fear any man any political leader that we either fear you alone the lord who died on the cross who rose again to reconcile us to the father and so father we pray in his name in the name of jesus amen